Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. Special guest tonight is Tim Magner. And Tim, I'm getting uh, feedback, so I'm thinking that you have both the phone line on and your mic. Is that better? Uh, let's see. Yeah, it is. And you can you can actually the best thing to do is to go back down to that audio area and click that handset button again, so the computer doesn't think it's um, needing to buffer that audio coming through. Next to your name, you'll see yep. a little handset mic when you do that. Anyway, Tim, we're we're sure glad to have okay. you here. You had some traffic, so we know that it, it uh, delayed you a bit, but uh, this is a good time to start. The Future of Education is sponsored by Illuminate, my employer. The project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a social network for educators that's free that has Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come to learncentral.org and play around. It's a lot of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education interview series, next week is kind of a Students 2.0 week. Dr. Robert Epstein is going to talk about his volume Teen 2.0 and all the research uh, that he's pointing to on adolescence. Jackie Gerstein the next day on user-generated education. And then on Thursday, Anya Kamenetz, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, but on her new book, DIYU. It's getting a lot of um, publicity and uh, there's a lot of discussion about the, her book. I've been hearing about it a couple of times a day. In the middle of that, Randy Orwin's going to talk about open source software. Then the next week, we've got some more fun coming up. Um, I think Leonard may even be in the audience, but I don't see him now. Anyway, please uh, consider coming to some of those sessions. We sure enjoy holding them and hope you enjoy having them. Uh, the Saturday before ISTE is EduBloggerCon again, our fourth EduBloggerCon. Uh, this is a free all-day unconference on social media and education. Go to EduBloggerCon.com. You'll notice there isn't much content there yet for that ISTE day, but we'll start building it and getting ready. This year, for the first time, we're holding Open Source Con the same day. So this is also a free unconference. Um, thanks to ISTE for both of these uh, unconferences that provide the wireless in the room. But Open Source Con will be a full day on open source software, uh, meaning other people who are using open source or learning to do so. So uh, again, opensourcecon.com for that. And now some really fun big news. I'm glad Lucy's here because we are going to hold a global education conference in November. Five days, multiple time zones, multiple languages, multiple tracks. Globaleducationconference.com. You'll also notice that the website is quite sparse right now. But we're very close to announcing we have the support of several really wonderful organizations. Uh, and we hope to have um, many more come on board. This is also going to be, we hope, a fully free event. Uh, and, and a really a great start to, um, to connecting uh, people globally and learning about the programs that are out there. If you've missed a Future of Education interview, they're all recorded, and you can go to futureofeducation.com. Today we had a great session with Michael Horn and Catherine Mackey from the Innocide Institute on their uh, continuing studies, white papers on uh, online learning and blended learning. Michael's co-author of Disrupting Class. And so um, you can find today's session and others from him on the site. Larry Ferlazzo, yesterday on English Language Learners. Terrific material. And not just for English language learners, as far as I'm concerned. Scott Rosenberg gave us a history of blogging that's fascinating. Uh, Tony Wagner talked about the global achievement gap. Carl Blythe uh, gave us a view of the, the really great work being done at the Texas Language Technology Center. Sir Ken Robinson was a huge hit, and many other fun events all recorded for you to listen to. 
If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. So you'll notice that as you're here in that participant window, that at the bottom of that window, you'll see some emoticons that let you click on a smiley face or the clapping hand. The larger one to the left, that is the hand with the green up arrow, lets you raise your hand. And we'll, do some, uh, we'll give you some opportunities to ask uh, Tim some questions. And if you think you'd like to do that through the microphone on your computer, do be sure to go up to Tools, Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone's working correctly. Uh, you can leave messages in the chat. Uh, with a group of this size, I like going up to View, Layouts, and I switch to the Wide Layout. Makes it a little bit easier to read the chat. And I'm going to give you a chance to let us know where you're listening from. Look for the wand to the left of the map with the red star at the end, and click on that, and then click on the map. And it's also funny if you shout out in the chat, maybe uh, what, where you are, our time and temperature. Looks like we have India, looks like France, UK. I don't want to guess in um, Asia, but tell us where you're listening from. New Zealand, Australia, Palo Alto, France, Philippines. How fun. Well, we are sure glad to have you here. This is a treat for me. I've wanted Tim to come on the show for quite some time. Um, very interested in, in having a conversation with him tonight and allowing you to ask him questions as well. So I'm going to now shift us to the next slide. Thanks for letting us know where you're listening from. Tim, welcome. Have you caught your breath? Yep, welcome. I have indeed. Thank you very much. So I did hear that echo. I'm glad to be able to be I, here. I appreciate your flexibility. I heard that echo again. So if you go down to uh, go down to the audio box, and uh, to the lower right of the sliders is a little icon with a handset. It's unchecked. And it's unchecked. You want to click on that. Now you have to un you have to uncheck your audio first because you're coming in through the telephone, so you don't need that. Uncheck the audio and then click on that little handset. And what it will do is it'll ask you if you want to switch to the teleconference bridge. Say yes. There we go. Now we won't get the echo, and your machine won't be expecting. Okay. Sorry about that. So would you give us a little bit of your background? Um, you have a, a very rich background in education, educational technology, and tell us kind of what you're doing now and what brought you there. Sure. Yeah, I am, um, well, I started out life as a, as a history and theater teacher, actually. Um, I'm a third generation educator. My grandma, grandmother, and my mother, um, all teachers. Uh, my brother and sister, actually, one time or another, were, were teachers as well. So. I have a very uh, rich uh, educational history, I guess, in the family, and uh, so uh, taught uh, both in the United States and in Europe, uh, and uh, had an opportunity, I guess, I got into technology um, because I got my first computer when I got my first teaching job, and uh, really um, backed into uh, the technology or, or rode the wave, I don't know how, <laughs> which is more appropriate, um, but had opportunities um, to start out as a, a technology specialist for um, uh, school district, and then became technology director, um, and uh, so did just did school-based work to district-wide work. Um, had the opportunity to to build websites in the early days of the, the internet um, with uh, the Kennedy Center. Uh, we did a uh, 
a uh, webcast actually of the National Symphony Orchestra in 1995, which was uh, early days for that that sort of thing. Um, had an opportunity to work uh, at PBS, building the back end for PBS Teacher Line, uh, and then um, ran school, the SIP, the Schools and Operability Framework, and uh, did that for a number of years. And uh, that really gave me a grounding in, in data and data systems, but also uh, the sort of international potential that uh, technology has. Uh, a lot of the work that we did in the early days um, in terms of getting SIF adopted in, uh, in the UK and, uh, and in Australia as well. Um, then I went to Microsoft, uh, served as their executive director for K-12 education. Uh, so again, had another opportunity to really get a global perspective. Uh, and then I uh, was asked to go to the Department of Education and serve as uh, the deputy director for the Office of Educational Technology. Um, did a stint at the um, Council of Teaching School Officers really helping them look at data and technology. And then when Susan left the department, I had a chance to serve as the Director for Office of Educational Technology. So I did that until the end of the um, Bush administration. And uh, then uh, joined uh, Casey Distance Learning, which is an online uh, learning company. Uh, they do uh, uh, core sales through the Venta, as well as um, they have a, a private school uh, called Keystone National High School that I ran. Um, and Keystone is a, one of the largest uh, middle school and high schools, uh, online middle schools and high schools in the country. It's about 22,000 students um, between part-time and full-time. And uh, been doing that uh, up until very recently. So I'm uh, just delighted to be here. So I, I guess from a perspective standpoint, I've, I've gotten to see um, educational technology from the school base, from district, state, national, and international level. And that has been a, um, both a a pleasure and a privilege to be able to to get to ex be exposed to so many uh, different perspectives uh, and to be able to see the all the different ways in which um, people are thinking about uh, what technology can uh, can do for for schools and hopefully the you know the perspective that I have now and the ideas that I'll share with you tonight uh, you know come from uh, that uh, the, that exposure and uh, from being able to uh, see and uh, experience a, a lot of different um, school types, a lot of different approaches to learning, and a lot of different uh, ways in which technology is coming to bear. Uh, one of the interesting things to me uh, about uh, the global perspective is that the range of issues that uh, different countries are dealing with uh, is really quite narrow. Uh, we're all wrestling with teacher uh, credentialing, teacher accreditation, teacher performance, we're all wrestling with closing achievement gaps of one kind or another, we're all wrestling with resource issues, with deployment, with scale. And so what has always been fascinating to me in talking with folks from around the world is the way in which the combination of their culture, their history, their approach to education, and the technology often come together in, in different combinations to allow different approaches to uh, solving some of the same problems that we have. So I've always um, found that I, I learn as much from engaging in a dialogue with uh, folks from other uh, perspectives uh, than I often do uh, in, uh, in sharing my own. So that's sort of the, the thumbnail, I guess, on me. Um, and I think the uh, Steve had um, asked me to come on and, and talk a little bit about my perspective on uh, the role of technology in education, obviously, um, but also um, particular in terms of uh, the role of government and to also speak to some of the things that um, 
one of the projects that I did at the department, uh, which was the um, School 2.0 uh, School 2.0 project that uh, is uh, still out and uh, is uh, being um, carefully shepherded right now, I guess, by uh, by the folks at ISTE and uh, CSIU, the Central Susquehanna Intermediate Unit. They're collaborating and uh, in continuing to provide those resources. So I'll give a little bit of background, I think, on, on that project kind of as a way of getting into some of the larger issues that uh, we're talking about. And uh, so the project really began as a as an approach to how do we how do we uh, empower champions? There are lots of people uh, in the world, uh, and many of whom I'm sure are on this uh, call today, who uh, have uh, who recognize that the, the way in which we're doing uh, education today uh, isn't meeting the needs of, of uh, many of our students for one reason or another. In some cases, because our, a lot of our students don't have uh, access to uh, to resources or, or have access to to good schools, but also um, many students who uh, are not being challenged or not being prepared for uh, the, the 21st century, the the skills and needs of the 21st century. Thank you very much for bringing the the website up there. Um, and we recognized that what was missing really was a way to uh, help those folks explain uh, both some of the challenges but also some of the opportunities that technology had uh, when it comes to, uh, to transforming education. Uh, a lot of times uh, I spent a lot of the different points in my career translating between educa educators and technologists. I had enough ed speak for the educators and enough geek speak for the technology folks. And so as a consequence, I recognize that for, uh, oftentimes uh, it's very difficult for people who are passionate about technology and, and education to find the right kinds of uh, examples, the right kinds of uh, ideas, and frankly the right uh, conceptual framework or the right frame of reference to convince people who don't either understand education or technology or don't understand both. And so what was needed really was a big picture. It was a way to help make sense out of all of this. And so we we um, brainstormed with a number of folks from various walks of life and various points in the, the education continuum and came up with an idea uh, for this poster which was really a, a different way to think about and look at uh, education. Uh, it was really looking at how we could depict uh, a community as a learning ecosystem that links home, school, and community that's supported by technology. Because it was critical for us to not just focus on the technology piece but really focus on the affordances of technology. What could what could technology do differently and what did that what does that difference look like not just in terms of perhaps a, a classroom based scenario but what does it mean for parents at home if i can sign on a digital uh, you know i can sign up my student for a field trip with a digital signature on a website and they and they can uh, and and pay for the field trip uh, at that time so there are little examples there's a, thank you for bringing that up um, there's a uh, each one of these areas then is a is an is an example of a kind of conversation that uh, occurs between individuals or between either parents and students or between students and teachers or between um, administrators and teachers. There's a whole range of different ideas. And again, the goal with this wasn't to be a blueprint. This isn't the the sort of the way it needs to be done. But rather, it was designed to help uh, support uh, conversation. What can uh, how can we encourage people to have a different kind of dialogue about the role that technology can play in transforming schools? And when you think about 
why that conversation is necessary is because so much of what we believe about schools uh, is embedded, uh, it's, it's implied, if you will, in our culture and in our uh, the way in which we approach school. We haven't had a really intentional conversation about the purpose of school for 100, 150 years. And so the reason we bus age-banded cohorts of kids together for six to eight hours a day uh, isn't explicit. If you ask people why they go to school or what school is supposed to do, most of the understanding comes from what people uh, know about when they went to school. Uh, they went to school because they had to, because it was going to get them a job, or because it was it, it, there was some connection to either an industrial factory type job, or it got them to college, or what have you. Uh, we haven't really begun a different kind of dialogue about in in the 21st century. What is what should school be doing? Why should we be busing age-banded cohorts and kids together for six to eight hours a day? And are we taking advantage of that time in the best way that we can? And so this was a, a, an opportunity to engage people in that conversation because, again, I think most of the uh, change, most of the opportunity for this change in dialogue has to happen at the local level. This can't be the federal government telling us what to do. It can't be uh, corporations or, or even states in some cases, but this has to be local communities having a conversation about what is valuable about the institutional school. What do we want it to do for us? And then if you can have that conversation, that creates a set of requirements then for what the technology needs to do. So the, the very small example that I mentioned about the parent signing the permission slip, it seems like a fairly innocuous uh, uh, goal or innocuous activity. And yet when you drill into that, the level of data system that you need to have to be able to associate a student with a parent, with a teacher, with an activity, and then provide that parent with a digital signature that's certified at the school level so that they can uh, get on a web browser and sign their student up for a field trip and approve that field trip all in the context of a data system is actually a pretty sophisticated system. And to be able to, to offer those kinds of experiences to parents or to be able to students, offer students virtual internships or other things like that, there's an entirely different kind of infrastructure that needs to be put in place. So the poster is there. You can download it. You can get a copy uh, in the mail. Um, and we also built a website around that that has um, uh, an act a, a version that you can click through and get into different. Uh, actually, you can see videos. You can you can actually click into the the picture itself and uh, look at all the different um, uh, vignettes and uh, see videos, see other supporting materials. There's a whole range of resources. There's a bandwidth calculator that you can use to help engage in a conversation uh, in your community about, or in your school about well, what, what kind of bandwidth do we need to do video conferencing? Or what if we wanted to do one-to-one? Uh, -one? What would that look like in terms of the bandwidth needs that we might have? And so there's a little bandwidth calculator that you can use to help do those kinds of what-if scenarios. Uh, there's also a whole range of uh, materials to support uh, different activities that um, that you can do with um, with your community. There's icebreaker activities. There's activities with the map where you can get people to do common visioning sessions. There's a little um, cut and paste activity that you can actually do um, to uh, that, the transformation toolkit uh, that you can use to uh, actually lead your community through an entire process of visioning around what they want the future of school to be and then have a conversation about the way in which technology supports that. There's a whole toolkit there. Um, it's all free. It's all available. 
we, we did a lot of vetting uh, with a lot of different groups, uh, school districts and others, to, uh, to um, make sure that, the, that these kinds of things were, were both germane and, and helpful. And I've been uh, I've been just very pleased with the the response that uh, that people have uh, have had to it and the number of ways in, in which it's been used. Again, it, the idea is that, is that it it really needs to be a it's flexible and you can use it in an a la carte fashion. So so that's sort of the the project. And what it what it really uh, boiled down to though was that um, when we when you think about what the purpose of school is anymore. The idea that school was once a place where we went to get information. School is really about distributing information. And when you look at the uh, the model of, of educational delivery, it's really about you bring people together to get information. And that made sense, you know, 50 or 100 years ago because there was more information in the school building than there was outside of school for the most part. Uh, and so the idea of bringing people together to listen was a very efficient distribution mechanism. What's happened, in particularly in the last 10 years, and you could argue even earlier than that, is that the amount of information that's available in school is now being trumped by the information that's outside of school. So in a lot of ways, the idea that we now bring people together to distribute information has um, been overtaken by the Internet and by the technology infrastructure around us. It's now much easier to distribute information to more people uh, outside of a, outside of a building than it is to be able to bring them together, and yet at the same time, um, if we're bringing kids together to listen, and then we're sending them home to practice, in some ways we're actually using uh, we're doing a disservice to both models, because if kids are listening in groups and practicing alone, then we miss the the affordances of face-to-face -face collaboration and we're also missing the affordances of distributed information. So what I would argue is that as we think about the purpose of school, what we need to begin to do is look at flipping the homework and schoolwork paradigm. And so that we leverage the technology infrastructure to be able to distribute information at home so that students can get information through TV, they can get it through the web, they can get it on their cell phones. There's a whole different, uh, whole range of ways in which we can just, you know, leverage the information infrastructure to deliver information. And then we should be able to bring them together in age-banded cohorts for six to eight hours a day and actually have them make and do things at school. So school should be, I would argue, much more about communication, collaboration, project-based learning, where uh, we're leveraging the fact that we have this face-to-face -face component. And so I think in a lot of ways what we've been doing with technology is trying to solve the wrong problem. The problem is not how do we distribute information better at school. Uh, if you if you look at what's happening in a lot of information deployment activities, they're constantly trying to figure out how do we bring wikis into school, how do we bring blogs into school, how do we bring um, you know mobile technology into school and make it safe and do filtering and all of this other stuff. When in fact, all of that stuff happens outside of school. How many times have you heard kids need to power down when they go to school? They don't have as much access inside of school as outside of school. So we're trying to replicate the technology infrastructure and the information distribution infrastructure outside of school, inside of school, and we can't do it nearly as well. And yet there are so many things that we do, can do well in school that we can't do at home. Um, Hands-on projects, uh, uh, playing on teams, sports, music, um, the arts, all of those things are, are much more difficult to do alone. 
uh, and yet we those are the first kinds of things that often get cut uh, when you look at school programs. So I think there's a there's a real need to begin to reassess both the value proposition for what um, we get out of school because so much of the kinds of things that we value about school, democratization, socialization, economic empowerment, uh, so, you know, social interaction, uh, it, we would lose in an environment where we, uh, uh, where you have exclusive online learning, for example. Uh, and so I think that as we begin to uh, engage in a dialogue about education and education reform, we need to be focused not on trying to fix 20th century schools, which is where, frankly, I think both of the, the current administration and the previous administration, I think, are focused, and, uh, and actually move much more toward building 21st century schools. If the focus is on building 21st century schools, then you make different choices about the kinds of ways in which you spend resources, about the kinds of ways in which you deploy um, broadband and technology and other things like that. So I think as, if we can step back a second and begin to in, uh, accept that, we can invert the homework and schoolwork paradigm. We can begin to uh, think about ways in which we maximize the face-to-face -face contribution that um, being together can provide students. And we then also begin to think about how we maximize what technology can do outside of school. We, we might make some very different choices. It may still be important, for example, for kids to uh, have laptops or handhelds or, or, or have uh, access to on-demand access to devices, but it may be most important that they have access to those on-demand devices at home. So we need to begin to look at different kinds of broadband deployment strategies. We need to look at different kinds of uh, programs to support um, uh, uh, ways in which um, we uh, focus on uh, internet uh, penetration in uh, in rural areas or in uh, in uh, high bandwidth access in uh, in inner cities or, or other things like that. That's a very different approach than focusing resources on schools. Or we can think about uh, turning schools into uh, points of presence where they provide WiMAX or provide other um, uh, uh, municipal wireless access to, to communities and things like that. Again, there's a lot of different choices we can make if the model that we're, that we're shooting for is in fact um, different. It also means too that the kinds of experiences um, that we want students to have in an academic, in, in a school-based environment also changes. So the nature of teaching changes. If you think about um, a medical model, for example, uh, where what's happened is uh, in the last 50 years, um, being a doctor um, in a hospital has changed fairly dramatically. Uh, it used to be that there were doctors who did a whole range of activities. Um, they took histories, they did external exams, they diagnosed, they, they, they uh, uh, prescribed. And now uh, if you look at something like House where you have a whole range of different types of um, paraprofessionals, um, PRNs, physicians assistants, lab techs, people who are leveraging a much more robust technology infrastructure to support what doctors do. Doctors still diagnose and prescribe for the most part, but they're doing so in collaboration with a whole range of uh, different types of professionals. In education, I think we have the same opportunity. If we, if the focus of that school-based environment is really a much more experiential, project-based kind of uh, approach, then um, freeing teachers to engineer those educational experiences becomes paramount. But also the nature of what it is to be a teacher 
uh, needs to break down as well. If you think teachers design, deliver, assess, evaluate, report, there's a whole continuum of things that they do, a lot of which, frankly, is administrative. And some of which could be done automated, some of which could be done by paraprofessionals. And so you could actually free teachers, if you will, to do much more of that um, educational engineering um, or, or architecting those educational experiences than for, frank, frankly being an assessment coordinator or uh, doing outreach to parents. And so suddenly you have a team teaching approach where you have three or four people who are working with 100 students, say, for example, but they each play a different role. Uh, they each have different skills, and they each support um, learning in a, in a different way. Uh, as a consequence, then, you, you can do a couple of things. First, you can be to begin to differentiate career paths. Secondly, you can begin to differentiate pay scales that allow you to uh, pay the folks who are, have the, um, the um, most sort of information management or information worker type of skills um, at the top at the top end. You can you can support uh, you have a, a range of paraprofessionals, a range of uh, different uh, occupations that leverage technology or that play different roles within that that educational context. But instead of expecting everybody to do everything, you're really being able to differentiate uh, the diff the kinds of opportunities that people have both career wise, but also you provide them with uh, significantly different uh, job roles as well. And so as you begin to think about it in, in that context, I, see, I think you can see how the focus of the, what happens within that educational institution necessarily changes as well. The rhythm of the, uh, of the school, suddenly now we're not uh, necessarily uh, linked to that agrarian calendar anymore. We're also not necessarily linked to the same kind of rigid uh, age-based model. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I uh, talk a lot, think a lot about is, you know, we have a current metaphor uh, for school that is largely a factory model. Um, you know, uh, time is the constant, quality is the variable, uh, kids move through the curriculum in a sort of uh, lockstep fashion, um, the, you have a fairly prescribed model, you know, that you can even go so far to say that, you know, schools look like factories, you move from, from, from assembly line to assembly line. So the question then becomes, well, what's the new metaphor? Is there a new metaphor for what school should be? Uh, is it an office where you come together in ad hoc cohorts uh, on a project basis where um, you have students from multiple age levels who play different roles? Uh, do you do, um, you know, does the, the teacher of record, if you will, play a facilitator model or play a, a different kind of, uh, of uh, a role uh, in facilitating and leading and guiding? And uh, the, the challenge then becomes uh, what, what's the dialogue that needs to go on to support that kind of, of a learning model? Uh, what, are the, what are the types of uh, conversations that need to happen in a, um, uh, in a community for this institution to still be of value? So I would argue that there is still a need for a school. There is still value in the place because the, what the place does is the place um, provides us with a community context in which we can engage one another, in which young people can learn how to deal with people they don't like or people they don't know. They, there's a socialization component. There's also a democratization component. We do communicate values um, for uh, for our communities through those institutions. But the challenge that we have is that we haven't really 
um, sat down and had a conversation in our communities about what is the role and purpose of this institution. Do we just want kids to, know, to go to this place, get a bunch of facts so they can get a job or they can go to college, um, or is there a different role that it plays uh, or there are different responsibilities consequently that the community has? So for example, um, there are a number of, um, uh, of uh, countries in the world where students at their end of 12th grade have a, a, a project that lasts several months where they need to go out in the community and they need to they need to design a question or they need to solve a problem and they need to go out in the community and they need to to uh, you know they do internships they they um, work with uh, members of their community to uh, help solve this problem or help uh, answer this question and again I think there's a there's an opportunity to re-engage our communities in playing a role with our young people um, again the, a lot of this though requires that that you get people on board one of the biggest challenges. Uh, I think in in this context is the fact that um, everybody's been to school and everybody expects that school is going to be the same as when they went and that's what they want to see and as a consequence I think that uh, this is why what we try to do with School 2.0 was not to provide an answer but essentially to help foster a dialogue help help begin a conversation because if you can, I believe if you can get people together uh, and these, and especially in, in countries like the United States, where you, where the population is, you have an increasingly large uh, population that does not have students in school. Um, they are being asked to, in some cases, support um, a school expansion or school growth or, or um, infrastructure or development for the second or third time, depending on their age. And so we need to communicate to them the civic value of engaging in education in a different way. We also have an opportunity to re-engage our young people with uh, different generations. And, and I think in having those kinds of conversations become very, very important because unless you can get people on board with there's a need to change, unless you can get people to buy into the fact that the old system doesn't work and that we need to try something new, they're not going to fund it. They're going to continue to resist it and they're going to continue to um, uh, not want to, they're going to continue to expect or demand the old things. So um, in, in, in line with this then, um, is is how we is defining then the new expectations for what schools is going to be, and that and when we begin to redefine those expectations, then we also redefine how we measure those expectations. Um, what are we measuring? What's the value proposition for uh, for school? What are the you know do how do we do assessments? How do we do evaluations? Uh, what are um, what are career and college ready uh, standards? Is it just simply uh, information management, knowledge recall, or are there the 21st century skills that uh, we talk about so much? Uh, in a lot of ways, I think um, the pendulum has. We, we tend to be so pendulum in education. We're whole language, we're phonics, we're old math, we're new math, and the we're at a point now where things like the 21st century skills, the partnership of the 21st century skills, the folks that achieve, a whole range of folks who are talking about these are talking about um, uh, critical thinking, problem solving, uh, uh, civic awareness, those types of things. Those used to be the things we emphasized in some sense uh, 20, 30, 40, you know, probably 50, 70, 75 years ago. And then there was an emphasis that became an emphasis on the content itself. And I think uh, in some ways it's simply realigning 
and and bringing back to prominence things like critical thinking and problem solving, communication skills, and recognizing that things like math and science and history, etc., are ways to teach those broader skills rather than saying the emphasis is on the, the content specifically and the critical thing in Promsign sort of comes along as a, as a side benefit. Um, if you, again, if you, take, if you take a broader view, then uh, with critical thinking and problem solving and collaboration uh, can, be get, can be garnered through uh, application opportunities. Uh, like uh, I, when I was in high school, I uh, did a lot of uh, work in the theater. And I built a lot of sets, and I had to use a lot of math to figure out how to how to build sets. And giving kids those kinds of opportunities through school allows you to make learning relevant, but it also gives them an entirely different set of skills that um, allow them to apply their learning in authentic ways. So uh, again, that's kind of the the, the soapbox uh, approach, I guess, if you will. I, I, again, I think there's there's huge numbers of opportunities. There are um, all sorts of different uh, uh, ways to approach the, the topic. But I think the, the fundamental piece to me is that we have to agree uh, in order to move forward that um, we need a different kind of conversation. We need to be able to sit down in our communities and have an intentional conversation about school. Because one of the challenges I think with technology is that we, technology has, is changing uh, it's moving so rapidly that it is it is fundamentally changing our social constructs on a daily basis. And whereas we don't often have the opportunity to to uh, make intentional choices in some cases about that in our personal lives, I think there is a risk that if we don't have intentional conversations about what we do with technology inside the, inside of school. Uh, that school will essentially um, be overwhelmed by the technology. Again, we, we're so pendular that people who say we should listen to the kids and let, let every kind of technology in, or other people who say we should keep every kind of technology out. Rarely have I seen the, the school that engages in a dialogue around um, what is an appropriate use for uh, technology, or when, when, when is it appropriate to use technology, when is it appropriate to use technology. I think a great example here is cell phones. Um, you know, what kind of message are we sending to kids when we tell them that they can't use cell phones, they're not allowed to have cell phones in school, and yet everybody knows that everybody has cell phones in schools. And so when the cell phone goes off, everybody reaches for their pocket, including the teacher. Um, and as opposed to saying, well, we recognize that there's going to be cell phones in school. Let's have a conversation about when it's appropriate, when it isn't appropriate. In, you know, it's okay in the hallway, it's not okay in class, or it's okay at lunch, or it's okay outside the building, whatever. But rarely have I seen um, the the kind of conversation that that, that leads that leads to that leads to a, a, a richer understanding a sort of third way. So clearly, um, we need to have a conversation. We need to find the mechanisms in our communities to sit down and say, why do why do we want school? What does it do for us? What are the kinds of expectations we have for school? And consequently, what what kinds of expectations should school have of parents? And community in terms of support and in terms of a different level of engagement. And if we can do that kind of conversation, then I think you can begin to build and begin to answer the kinds of questions about what technology, what learning, what assessment, what types of experiences should students have. So Tim, that's the easiest interview I've ever done. Hey, I want to ask a couple quick questions, and then I want to open the floor to the audience to ask questions as well. So I love the vision, and you actually you went right to the core of, of my question. 
And I'm still getting a little echo, so for those of you listening, I apologize for that. So the, the question for me is, how successful was the school, the school 2.0 toolkit? And, and because I don't see it sort of sweeping across our local areas. And, and if we say that this dialogue is needed, that we really need to go through a process of culturally renegotiating what schools are, and it's not happening either with either party or in any place on the spectrum politically, then what can we do to help that dialogue start taking place? Yeah. Okay, so the first part of the answer to the first part of your question is that um, I think I think it, I think it was successful. I mean, we, the the metrics that we we used kind of to evaluate, and, and it's it, it's difficult to assess impact in in, in, the, in engagement like this. But we know that we had originally I think 5,000 maps, and uh, those were gone in a matter of of months. Uh, I know there's more out there now. I think we ended up running a having a run of 10 or 12,000, and I know a lot of them. Uh, are gone. Uh, so, so there's certainly an indication of interest using that metric. Uh, we know that it, the site's been accessed from every state in about 20 countries, um, and, it, and that was within the first six months of it being out there. We also did something where uh, there wasn't a lot of publicity around it. Um, it wasn't, you know, linked from the homepage. It wasn't. Uh, there wasn't, you know, a big splash or anything. And, and part of that was to see would would there be what would you know how would it spread virally? Uh, was this a, was this an idea whose time had come and, and could people uh, did, were people interested in in, uh, in seeking it out or or doing Google searches or Bing searches or whatever and finding it? And, and we found that uh, that it did have a tremendous amount of uh, of, uh, of uptake in currency. Um, the challenge, though, I think, is that um, to your second point is you know why what why, you know why didn't it take off? Why isn't it sweeping the sweeping the world? Up? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that. Um, I, I think that uh, it, it has to get it has to it has to permeate organically. People have to have to get to the point where they're ready to have that conversation. Um, we initially, when we define the idea of sitting with community, uh, you can define that community in a, in a broad uh, number of ways. For example, a community could be your peers in your in your um, uh, your department or your your grade level, and just sitting down and coming to consensus among yourselves about what is critically important for you. Or to your, um, uh, you know, it could be your whole school if you're a principal. It could be your your actual community if you're on school board or or, or what have you. So I, th I think I think there's a there's a, a natural time lag for people to uh, adopt new ideas and adapt them to their own circumstances. And and so that that goes to the third point: what can people do? I think they they can have they can have a conversation. Um, they can begin to figure out where, where, what's their sort of zone of, of, uh, of, uh, of, sort of proximal um, uh, involvement, or, or you know, wh where's their sphere of influence, and they can begin to have that conversation within that sphere. If that's in your school, if that's with your colleagues, if that's if you sit on a school board, or if it's at your kid's school, um, I think it's about engaging people in that conversation. And this is not, this has got to be, in my opinion, a, a, a grassroots. Um, bottom-up kind of approach because my my view of, uh, in terms of government is that it's government's government does best when it sees patterns in waves of innovation and then is able to scale those. So if you can get if you can look because you at a national level you can you get to see it from a sort of 50,000 feet. If you can begin to see patterns of innovation. 
then those are the kinds of things you build policy around. And I think the opportunity exists for people to take advantage of the toolkit, take advantage of lots of the other kinds of dialogues that are going around, but engage their community in a conversation about what's next for school for us, and then build on that. And then if we can begin to see those patterns, then you can, uh, then you can sort of scale from there. So uh, you, there's a lot of chat, and I think there's some questions. If you'd like to take the microphone to ask a question, use the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of the participant window to raise your hand, and I'll give you the mic. It helps if you've already run the audio setup, so you know your mic will work. And so we're going to give the mic first to Pierre. You can also put questions in the chat. And Tim, I'll, I'll let you look for those as we get going here. So there you go. Okay. Hello, Tim. Uh, yeah, I wanted to know uh, what is your experience okay, uh, on the international level as far as third world countries, you know, specifically. What's my specific country have I been to? Is that is that the question? I think his question was, what experience have you had in the international level? Okay. Okay. Um, well, I um, I taught in uh, in France and Switzerland, and I, I went to school actually in Japan. So I have experience both as a as an educator and a um, and a student uh, in uh, overseas. But um, I spent time in um, let's see, I spent time in, um, in Scandinavia, spent time in uh, in the Middle East, spent time in Asia, Europe. Uh, you know, probably. 35 countries, probably. Um, in some cases, meeting with ministries. In other cases, touring schools. In other cases, um, working with um, uh, educational providers uh, at, in uh, in various uh, contexts. Um, often, uh, most often, looking at the ways in which technology can be leveraged, um, either at a at a sort of a regional or national level, um, as well as then uh, look, also looking at uh, the ways in which uh, school uh, school culture um, uh, can uh, take advantage of, of technology clearly um, with a, with that broad a gamut, uh, it's everything from you know, schools with with uh, no windows and no electricity up to schools that uh, you know had uh, you know one to one laptop programs. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it's a, a pretty broad cross section. Uh, I haven't been to Sub-Saharan Africa. I haven't been into India. Uh, yet, uh, but uh, a lot of other places in between. So it looks like he asked a couple of follow-up questions. One was he meant with respect to online teaching, and then earlier on he'd asked a very specific question okay. that I'm reposting here about scholarship funds for students in Haiti so they couldn't take advantage of due to the country's infrastructure. What sort of experience do you have with this issue? So I think he's just sort of drilling down on uh, uh, sort of maybe your perspective on international education as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think clearly there's a, I mean, clearly there's a need for yeah, for um, international education on a number of levels. Clearly, there's a there's a need for um, folks in in um, the developing world to be uh, in the developed or or in the, in um, 
countries in, in um, North America and Western Europe, Asia, etc., to be aware of one another, to be aware of uh, other other countries and cultures in the world. Certainly, the, you know, with with the, the rise of globalization, there is a, a significant need for us to become more aware of one another. And I think there are lots of great programs out there. Um, uh, Iron Global Schools, etc., that that facilitate um, projects that enable students to not just learn about one another, but to learn with one another. Um, so I think there's clearly opportunities uh, to to take advantage of that, and and I would argue that uh, that's the, that kind of experience is one that every every single uh, student in, in uh, certainly in the United States um, should should be provided by the time they're out of uh, out of middle school uh, at a minimum. Um, on the on the, the the sort of global education front, um, in terms of providing resources to to help uh, students, um, uh, you know, because it was really about uh, let me just get to the question here is about um, uh, uh, scholarship. Can't hear scholarship. Um, you know, there again, I think uh, this is uh, infrastructure development is is one of the the um, uh, significant issues. Uh, I'm in a, working on a project right now with the UN where um, you know we're looking at uh, teacher training uh, and the requirements for teacher training. And there's a there's a significant issue with infrastructure because it varies so widely. But I think one of the things that that we have um, uh, one of the the challenges I think or disservice I don't know what the right word is uh, we have tended to expect that. Um, uh, uh, the way in which you integrate technology and education is you always get the next the next big thing um, because we always want to keep moving forward to the affordance the, the affordances of the new uh, the the latest technologies and with with few exceptions I think the the differences in what the new technology can do versus what the previous version of the technology can do are often not very large they may be faster it may be a little uh, a, a little different. Um, you know, configuration that may be a little more efficient, uh, but more often than not, the differences between uh, versions of operating systems are different between one class of computer and another is not that great. And so, as a consequence, I think as educators, if we step back and think about well, what are the what are clearly the types of experiences that students need to have, and what what's the what technologies or technology or technologies allow us to do that. Then I think it, it creates a different kind of conversation about the role of the technology. Similarly, I think if you adopt the model uh, that I was talking about, then in theory you don't need a lot of technology in school, right? You you can use a lot if there's technology outside of school. If students have access, ideally at home, but um, in through other um, venues through uh, libraries or through internet cafes or through labs that are available at the school or or, or other uh, access to, to that technology resource. But the goal of the technology is not to be used in in a school-based context um, for information distribution, but rather in a school-based context for problem solving or for helping them to support um, uh, different kinds of, of learning outcomes. Then your infrastructure needs also change as well. Um, and 
again, I think it, there have been some terrific examples in uh, emerging uh, uh, democracies or in, 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 in emerging countries where they view schools as that point of presence where the school has become the ISP, where the school has become the locus for, for that infrastructure component. Uh, and and that's, that's been transformational in terms of not only giving students access, but giving communities access as well. So I think there's a number of different approaches to, to how you can um, both uh, internationalize education from a content standpoint, but also from the ways in which you can uh, leverage technology to provide different kinds of experiences and support um, learning and community development as well. It was intriguing to me, because I didn't know this about you, that you um, had a background in theater. And it seems as though this has been kind of a running theme for the last few weeks, uh, especially with Sir Ken Robinson and, and issues of uh, thinking about having the arts in schools. And how many people who are now saying things that resonate with us who have a background in the arts, do you think there's a tie there? I do. I, I honestly believe that. Um, uh, you know, a lot, uh, I think that uh, that our one, uh, our primary competitive advantage in the United States is the fa is the range of extracurricular activities that we provide to our young people through school. Um, I would argue that the thing that we do better than anybody else, and that gives us the greatest economic competitive advantage, is the art pro arts programs, music programs, sports programs. Um, the extracurricular activities that we provide through our school systems, I think um, we do more of that um, through school than I think any other country in the world. And as a consequence, I think we give kids the opportunity to um, uh, learn about um, uh, teamwork, learn about collaboration, but also learn how to apply uh, what they know. It, it, they, those things teach discipline. They teach, I mean, there's a whole range of things, clearly, that, that, that I'm sure Sir Ken probably waxed poetic as he can about, about those things as well. Um, I would argue that actually that is the, the fundamental purpose of school. Uh, you know, I have, I've got teenagers, and um, they go to school because that's where their friends are. And I think if we embrace that opportunity rather than fight it, we can create a really dynamic environment where kids want to be in school. And then we can, if we can leverage the technology, we can get them to realize that by accessing the information that they need to have to participate fully in that school the next day creates a very different dynamic with regard to homework. And now homework's the thing you've got to, homework's the busy work, homework's the application piece that, that is often very difficult to do alone. I mean, how many, how much have we heard about kids who, are, who do their homework together uh, they're, they're doing it separately, but they're doing it over IM or they're, or they're you know, helping each other solve problems and those kinds of things. Why are we fighting that? Why don't we provide those kinds of opportunities in school um, and, and then use the home as the place where they can watch the PowerPoint deck or they can watch the movie or they can um, see, uh, hear a lecture and, and, and uh, take notes on it and uh, rewind it when they, they miss that piece or can, provide, can be provided two or three different ways to see that. Maybe there's a PowerPoint and a movie and a lecture. Uh, those are all things that the technology allows us to do in an individual environment that it doesn't allow us to do in school. Um, so I, I, I do think that the arts are huge, and, and it's it's always a, a concern to me when those are the first things that get cut because I think that that is um, that's our future. Um, it has both uh, tremendous. I mean, I don't need to tell you about all the the correlations between music and math and all that kind of stuff. But it also um, provides inspiration, and it, frankly, it provides a cultural richness that um, 
I, I think we we are we are poorer for its loss. Okay, so uh, um, Tim, we're at the top of the hour. Uh, that was really terrific. If people want, I'm going to clap for you here. If people want to continue to listen to you or make contact with you, what's the best place for them to do so? Um, actually, if they can do it through uh, my email at uh, tmagner66 at gmail.com. I'll just type it in here. And uh, you're welcome to drop me a line, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Tim. That was wonderful. About the easiest interview I've ever done. Uh, it loved the content, loved your viewpoint. <laughs> we'll really look forward to hearing more from you and staying in contact with you. Thanks to those of you who've attended tonight. Sure, appreciate your spending some time with us here at Future of Education. Don't miss next week as we talk about some other fun things. And um, good night. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. You guys have a great night. Good night.